The Fitness Reborn podcast is a companion piece to Renaissance Fitness personal training. This podcast is to serve as educational and entertainment purposes only. It does not in any way constitute as medical advice. If you have a medical concern, please seek out your provider. everyone, this is the Fitness Reborn Podcast. My name is Sean from Renaissance Fitness Personal Training, where we put movement ahead workouts. And my guest today is Al Lyman. Al is coming from me, uh, speaking to me from Florida. Uh, he's a speaker, a coach, and the author of Age Well and Feel Great, The Proven Path to Solving the Aging Puzzle. So give you kind of a snapshot of what we're going to talk about here largely with Al, but thanks so much for coming on now. Sean, thanks so much for having me, man. And I uh, I have to be honest, I loved the introduction uh, movement before workouts. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. I are totally on the same page with regard to that. That's for sure. Yeah. I, I appreciate that. I did put some thought into that. You know, I tried to, you know, try to look for some sort of catchy hook to start yeah. my, my show off here. And that yeah. just kind of, uh, that, that really, it, one, yeah, it speaks to how I, my way, my mind is, my mind works and how I like to train my peeps. And, the kind of message I want to communicate out there. I know we'll get we'll get into that more as we go yeah, on here. Sure. I know you're big into movement. Um, and on that topic here, or just well, this is kind of start out here. Let's kind of go from the beginning here. So you live in Florida now. You said you told me before we broadcasted that you come from New England. Yeah. Um, so, and I know that. Your whole story here is literally your story. You started this very early in life here, this whole uh, emphasis on fitness and movement and greater health here. So just to kind of give a backstory here, uh, what was your uh, upbringing like, you know, living in New England? Well, I mean, I loved uh, growing up, you know, in Connecticut. It's where obviously my folks were and where they were born uh, and raised. You know, and the story for me really comes back to, you know, as a as a kid, I wasn't really active. Uh, I didn't do a whole lot of sports. Um, and I always think of myself as, you know, I was, I was the kid in, you know, on the playground that was the very last to get picked for kickball. You know, I wasn't athletic uh, or any of those things. Really, music was my thing growing up. But interestingly, when I was in uh, my early 20s, I had my, I got my first big gig. And I started thinking, based on what I was seeing a lot of my colleagues doing, I thought maybe, you know, I should try to get in shape. And I hadn't really done anything athletically or fitness oriented until that point. Um, so I started a running program, which was which was really hard. You know, I suffered a lot. But as I started to improve a little bit, I, I kind of started to think about the running lifestyle and all of the things associated with that, you know, eating better and, and, and that whole thing. And that really progressed to me thinking about health in a broader perspective and also aging, ironically. And as I tell the story in my book, when I was 25, I was having this conversation with a friend and he asked me why I ran and my, I blurted out to him after thinking about it for a long time that I ran to square the curve. And of course he was mystified by that phrase. And what it meant to me was this idea of living my entire life in good health without 
disease or dysfunction. And then one day going to sleep, perhaps at the age of like 120 and, and not waking up the next day. So this idea of seeing this horizontal line and then this vertical line um, juxtapose more of a gradual downward slope, which is more typical of what we see a lot in our society, a gradual decline of health. The way I describe it in the book is that, unfortunately, many people die a slow death before their actual demise, be it cognitive, functional, emotional, or what have you, or some combination of all three. So to be 25 and to make this conscious decision to die healthy was, of course, you know, weird, right, for someone in their 20s to even think about that. But that really began a journey for me where, of course, I went off into many different directions in the fitness arena and the movement arena and so forth and so on, which some of which I'm sure we'll talk about. But it was all, you know, it was all sort of on this, you know, broader perspective of I want to be as healthy as I, uh, you know, as I can possibly be. Your opening phrase, movement before workout speaks to the same thing I've said for the better part of 40 years, which is, which is to say, I want to train for the betterment of the body, not to its detriment. Mm-hmm. And, and if, you know, that's a philosophy that's guided much of, of what I've done. So I sit here, I'm 63, and I just decided last year to finally put all of what I've, you know, done together from a coaching perspective, a, you know, a therapist and so forth and so on, and just share what I've learned uh, in this book that sort of encapsulates all these different aspects of health and aging. So when I sat down to start to work on the mind map of the book and the outline, I wasn't thinking it was going to turn out to be a 680-page book, but that, but that's what it is. It's 30 pages of wow. scientific references and just, you know, just a whole host of topics. There's seven chapters on nutrition, four or five chapters on movement and strength. Uh, and all of these uh, different aspects. I have an entire chapter on how to improve your feet, uh, an entire chapter just on core stability. Um, And of course, there are what for me were really enjoyable chapters to write, which is to say chapters on age beliefs and aging stereotypes and how we think about this journey, because you're a young guy. But when you reach a point where, right, I, mean, I know you're, you're not in that part. Well, you know, I, I'm, for uh, disclosure purposes, I'm 40 years old. I don't consider that, 40, so I, don't, you know, I don't consider that old, but that is, uh, that's not a young buck anymore. <laughs> what, what, what's interesting is that, you know, as we, as we go through each phase of our life, and I obviously hitting now my 60s, I'm sure someone who's listening, maybe 70 or 80 will say, well, wait until you, you know. Yeah, but I think the thing is, is for me, I've I've spent a lot of time thinking about how to embrace each phase of this journey because personally, I hate the phrase anti-aging because to me it glorifies youthfulness, mm-hmm. and I think what we've got to do, both individually and collectively as a society, is figure out the best ways to make the most of each phase that we're in. So I don't, I don't think aging is bad, right? I mean, the alternative is really bad. But what I think is we're not doing the aging thing very well uh, as a society. We can do that better. So there's a couple of chapters on that where I really explore um, this idea of, you know, 
again, aging stereotypes, how we rewrite the narrative in our mind about about this whole journey that we're on. Because of course, every decade brings with it new challenges and new obstacles that we really want to be able to handle successfully. So that's yeah. it, really in a nutshell. Yeah, I think it's I think you hit a well, one, you hit pretty right from the start, you hit a lot of very good points right there about especially about how people actually die, at least in this country here, if we're talking about the United States, but we're probably this probably applies globally. Um, people generally die slowly. I mean, you hear about the, you know, the sudden deaths from car wrecks and um, plane crashes and things Trump. like that. Yeah, you hear about that, but that statistically is actually fairly rare in comparison to how people actually die. You're right. It's usually a gradual decline that really starts, honestly, in your 40s. But you don't really notice it until it's your 50s and then your 60s and then everything that has been happening behind the curtain that you weren't paying any attention exactly. to yep. is now starting to show itself. Yeah. And and this is when – this is when because I've – as a trainer, I've seen this a lot too is when I have people in their 60s who are signing up that are feeling their body failing on them and now they are getting the wake-up call that they should have gotten, you know, 30 years ago and now they're trying to get ahead of it which is not to it's not to take anything away from them better late than never of course but i but i think uh one thing that stands out about you and one thing that i think we should highlight is that you started this when you were young you got ahead of the eight ball in your 20s yeah and so now you're in your now you're in your 60s and you're doing this well because you've been at it for so long you know, versus someone who just got onto it after they hit 50. Right. Um, and you're, and again, to kind of reiterate what you said earlier, most people die slowly. Like it, it becomes a chronic illness and it goes on for years, years and years and years. And then eventually it just kind of kills them. And that's how most of us actually do die. So yep. the earlier, the earlier you start, the better. I think, you know, without question, the earlier you start, the better. But I also say this, Sean, I, I really believe and I'm sure you you could you would attest to this from the work that you're doing with with the people that, you know, that are fortunate to work with you. But the human body is an, is amazing in its ability to heal itself when we stop right. picking the scab. Right. <laughs> and I think that's the problem when we stop doing the things that are, you know, the root cause of some of the issues, be it chronic inflammation osteoarthritis, uh, you know, dealing with, you know, a gut that isn't functioning well by eating too much processed foods, of course, muscle wasting sarcopenia, actually addressing that by engaging muscle, but doing it in a smart way where you're, you know, first working on joint range of motion, movement competency, learning how to radiate tension from within so that we, you know, can create real integration and connection. These kinds of things when we start to employ better habits, the, the human body is amazing in its ability to heal itself. And you know, what's interesting, uh, and, and of course I have a, a lifetime to now look back on, but as I sit here, I've never, other than some antibiotics after dinner work, I've, I've never taken a prescription drug. Um, I've been very fortunate, but I've also made the conscious decision to not do that. And I think that's part of the journey too, is, Many of us, certainly in my age group, 
I think most 60 and over people are on at least two to three prescription medications, you know, be it uh, some kind of an antidepressant, perhaps, God forbid, a statin, which is, you know, got more side effects that do more damage in many respects to your health than anything else. So when folks can start to, you know, unpack some of these changes in their daily habits and rituals and stop picking that scab, so to speak, and then maybe get off some of the meds and allow for some of the lifestyle changes to have an impact, then amazing things can happen. And I've, and I'm sure you've seen it. Uh, folks can really turn things around and dramatically lower their risk. I don't think you can undo the, some of the damage which has been done, but I will say that, I mean, I've, I've seen amazing things, amazing transformations happen you know, happen in people when they just start to do, you know, some of the right things and, and really take control. Because at the end of the day, it's about an individual person accepting responsibility. And, and part of that, I think, is, is our belief system. I mean, in, in my book, certainly in the coaching programs and the people that I work with now, it starts with mindset. Because you know, right, if someone walks into your space and they, you know, in the back of their mind, they doubt whether they can even really have any impact on their health, the odds of them being engaged and doing all they can uh, is, is somewhat limited compared to them saying, I believe that this matters. I believe that I matter. I believe that my loved ones matter. And therefore... I'm going to engage and I'm going to do all I can. And reinforcing that positive, I mean, it sounds a little foo-foo, but it's our mindset really and our belief system really sets the stage for us being able to take control, right? To really control the things we can and let the rest of it go. Because there's a lot we can't control naturally about the world around us, but there is a lot we can control. And that's what we got to focus on. Yeah, mostly in my experience, when I've had people, generally older people, so let's say like, you know, people that are late 60s and early 70s, um, generally what I found is that what re really kind of hinders their progress is the mindset, of course, um, but it's really more of, it's not that they don't want to believe or they don't really think this is beneficial, it's just that the fact, the minute they leave my, my site, they go and do things that, or don't do things that don't uh, contribute to their success. And so I see them again, and it's like going back to square one, again and again and again. Um, so it is, you know, you're, you're right. It is a is a mindset game where you do have to kind of, you have to kind of almost trick or fool yourself into thinking, you know what, I can do this. You know, you have to have kind of a, I think, an air of reckless abandon in that way, saying, no, screw no. it. Yeah. Let's do it. Yes. That kind, of, that kind of thing. Um, but uh, that's really been the biggest hindrance in my in, in my experience when working with people here, and you know, we're, uh, some people. And uh, has that has that been the been the case with you as well when you've had um, people come to you? Well, I think I think what you're saying makes sense, Sean, and I think it's actually incredibly common and. In my experience, I think one of the challenges that that we have as, you know, trainers or therapists 
compared to the average person who's just walking around who wants to be healthier. Right. Is that we think about this stuff 24 seven and we're thinking about every element of our life and how it can enhance our health and how it can enhance our performance. Right. The challenge for the average person, I think, is that very often in those moments when they feel a little bit of that, they try to do too much. They try to make too many wholesale changes and, you know, they try to bite off too much. And I think that more than anything else becomes a hindrance over the long term because inevitably they're going to they're going to have a day where they don't feel it or where there's an obstacle that prevents them from, you know, continuing that massive change, say, to overall overhaul their diet or to completely change their social environment in an effect, mm -hmm. you know, or even with regard to exercise. So in my book, what I what I say over and over again is that we have to start small. I, I actually say, believe it or not, that we have to start so small that the change is almost imperceptible because only then can and, and that means accepting where we are. Right. And being where we are, not necessarily where we might want to be eventually. But but if I accept where I am right now and I look at what I'm capable of and what I'm doing right now in my own routines, rituals, habits, what have you. And then if I just consider it one tiny little change to that, that I can be consistent with almost without even thinking about it. And if I can just continue that. Then in my experience, those, you know, that's one thing that people can latch on to that allows them to build momentum. And you know, and I know that mm -hmm. it takes consistency over time to right. begin to see the benefits of these changes, which, by the way, is so hard, right? I, I, I really believe that resistance to change, Sean, it may be the most powerful force in the universe, more powerful than gravity or anything else. I mean, we just don't want to change, you know, I mean, as, as a human, as a, as a species, I think even when what we're doing is clearly not good for us, uh, but it is a, you know, something that has been a habit or some part of our life, we're still resistant to change it, you mm -hmm. know, to change that one thing, whatever it may be. So I, I think that, you know, start small, start really small, but be consistent. You know, the other thing that I think has been powerful, and I'll just throw this out, and this is something I've learned in this beat aging coaching transformation program that I've started relative, relatively recently, is I'm asking each person involved to journal every day, and in particular to record and acknowledge even the tiniest little positive thing that they do or that happened that day that, you know, that they, they need to acknowledge, they need to write it down. It's, you know, encouragement, but it comes from them to themselves, right? Because right. we all need encouragement from others. You spend a lot of your time as a trainer encouraging the people you work with constantly, right? I mean, that mm -hmm. may be our biggest responsibility, but I think people are not inclined to encourage themselves. And to a person, everyone has said to me that that process of journaling, of actually writing down every day, whatever they could recognize that really went well and patting themselves on the back for that has made a big difference for them. So it's just about a little bit of momentum 
and figuring out support systems to keep that momentum going long enough to be able to latch onto the positive aspects of it that will then, you know, feed continuous progress. Because you know, and I know that motivation does, you know, just drop on us like magic pixie dust from, mm -hmm. you know, the sky. It actually comes from taking action. It's the action that right. fuels the motivation that allows us to continue to make those changes. So, all right. So we're, we're talking about longevity here and I've had, you know, quite a few guests on who have talked, um, on, on this issue. Um, you know, I've had MDs and PhDs on it and stuff like that. And everyone has, everyone kind of has their own take about what's the best way to go about it. And, you know, of course I've read and am currently still reading, you know, so much literature on this idea of aging and there's so many uh, authorities out there sure. who are, who are becoming more and more well known. I mean, we have, you know, um, people like Peter Atita and, um, I can never remember this guy's there are, name. There, there's Dave Sinclair, Matt, Dave, 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 yeah. Sinclair, Dave Sinclair, right. Yeah. Andrew oh. Huber books. Yep. Yeah. Andrew Huberman. Sure. Um, all these like these YouTube celebrities and whatnot. And, you know, I, I do listen to a lot of these guys and they are very, they're what they write and what they say is very persuasive and their, their um, backgrounds in this stuff is strong. Um, so, but you mentioned earlier that there, uh, there is a, there is a way, a certain way that people can go about this. That is, probably the best way that they can actually achieve this longevity kind of holy grail that we're talking about now um, in terms of like anti-aging. You know, you don't even, you don't even like that term. I don't like it either because I think you're right. It does glorify youth and it does tend to promote this goofy um, idea out there that, you know, life after 40 doesn't seem to exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you better grab everything you can before you hit that 40 mark. Um, but in your experience and in your personal appearance or personal opinion, what is the best way to actually achieve this longevity? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Sean. And, you know, naturally I've given it yeah. a lot of thought and studied it all of, all of it for many, many years. And, I, like you, have followed a lot of these folks, and in fact, many of them are referenced in my book. Here's the way that I look at it. I tend to put, first of all, I'll say up front that for me, it's about health span, not lifespan. It's about the right. quality of the years, not the length of them. Although I right. would be lying to you if I said I didn't want to live for a long time. I just don't <laughs> want to live in pain for a very long time. I don't want to suffer. I don't think anybody would say, hey, yeah, I'll sign up to live 120 if the last 40 years are, you know, I'm miserable every day because I'm suffering. You know, nobody would want that, right? But here's the way that I think of it. I tend to put uh, our health and certainly uh, as it relates to longevity, I, I tend to put it uh, as a as a larger subject into two columns. There are the physiological, i.e. chronic diseases uh, aspect of it. And there are the functional, i.e. movement related act aspects to it. Now, when I look at the physiological, which is to say our risk for Alzheimer's or other dementias, heart disease, um, cancers, of course, and any of the other diseases that we would categorize and say, hey, these are what, you know, is killing us. When we look at those aspects, 
there's a lot of mystery as to as to what is really going on. I mean, we can look at you know longevity medications like metformin and rapamycin and others, and look at what's happening, and 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 look at the mTOR pathway, look at the theories of aging, and what's really going on at the cellular level. And there's a chapter of my book on that, so I talk about you know senescence and autophagy and all of these other aspects, many of which your your listeners may be familiar with. But that's, to me, that's one bucket. And there's a lot of mystery there. Let's be very honest. We, we don't always know why certain people become sick and other people don't, right? There's a lot we do know, certainly, but there's a lot we don't. On the other side, though, if we look at the bucket of the functional decline, to me, there's no mystery there whatsoever. And the more we look at things like you know, myokines and other, you know, proteins and what, you know, really looking at the physiological benefits of, for example, maintaining muscle, right? Simply put, like the more muscle we can maintain, all of the other downstream positive effects from that. So what am I really saying? What I'm, what I'm coming back to is the way that I look at it individually and the way that I um, work with the people that I work with is to say, let's do everything we can to, to give ourselves the best odds with regard to the physiological stuff, you know, our disease risk. And to me, it comes back mostly to the food. You know, I mean, I consider that to be the most important factor because processed industrialized food is, you know, ubiquitous everywhere. People are eating too frequently. Uh, I say in my book, I've got an entire chapter on insulin resistance and hyperinsulinemia. I say that that is the linchpin that launches all of these other diseases. I would go further to that and even say it's about mitochondrial health. So when we look at metabolic health as a whole, I think we can get right down to the mitochondria and look at the health of those organelles and really about energy production. Certainly there's the metabolic, you know, theory of cancer and this idea that cancer relies on sugar outside of the mitochondria and, and ferments that sugar and that's how cancer survives. So what I really, you know, what I'm coming back to is let's, let's look at that bucket, do all we can by eating as well as we can, which is eating real food, really, it's really what it comes down to uh, and the quality of the food we're eating. Let's do all we can here, but at the same time, let's really focus on the functional aspects for which there's no mystery. Because I can tell you right now, I mean, I sit here at 63, I'm stronger than I've ever been. And I've done, you know, I mean, I've had, I have an entire lifetime of athletic activity. I've done nine Ironman triathlons, been to Kona three times, have a 239 marathon PR, um, all of these other things. But I sit here now stronger than I have ever been. There's nothing that I, I don't think I can do uh, right now. Jump up on, you know, on the pull-up bar and do 25 uh, wide arm, you know, strict pull-ups. To me, this is where uh, sort of my own personal secret weapon, because I believe as long as I'm moving well, my joints have fairly good range of motion and I'm paying attention to that, I'm stable and strong and engaging all of, all of the muscles in my body in a smart way, then I just don't see how my physical decline is, is going to progress nearly at the rate 
uh, that we typically see. I'm not trying to sit here and say that, you know, I'm going to be as strong at 80 as I am right now. I think that would be silly to say. But I also want to, you know, I, I want to make sure that everyone is hearing this idea that let's worry less about the things where there's a little bit of mystery and focus on the things for which there's no mystery whatsoever. Because as long as you can move and you're not in pain and you can participate in life and go out and do the things that you want to do with the people you want to do them with. I mean, I got a five-year-old grandson. I run around the yard with him. We wrestle. We, you know, we jump up, you know, I mean, it's just, there's nothing I can't do with that young man. And I, I plan on racing him, you know, right into his teens where eventually he's going to be able to, to outrun me. But to me, that is where we want to focus. And of course, this connects to what you do as a trainer. So that's the way that I think about it. You know, what's interesting is, you know, Atia, as one example, who is certainly considered one of the influencers in the field, he says that exercise is the most you know, important or profound way in which to uh, to affect the aging process. Even though exercise is my background and fitness mm -hmm. is my background, I still give a slight edge to food because what I've seen over and over again is you can never out-exercise a bad diet. And the implications of putting, you know, poor quality food into your diet or eating too frequently such that you're responding really to cravings and not actual hunger. Uh, to me, those are much more damaging than not getting, say, X amount of exercise in your routine. Like, one, you know, one is sort of A and the other one is like, you know, 1A. Um, they're, they're close in terms of their importance, but I still think the food we're eating has a greater impact than uh, virtually anything else. So that's how I think about it, you know, putting, in, putting it really into those two buckets. So, you know, as we, you mentioned this earlier, and this has been said before many times on this program, like as we age, we lose muscle. It's called sarcopenia. Um, the declines dramatically increase when you hit 50. It starts to increase when you're 40. And it, also, I should probably mention that all this, this stuff about, you know, slow deaths and losing muscle and losing ability, the marker for this stuff has been, keeps getting pushed back. And, you know, once upon a time, it was 50. You know, then it pushed back to 40. Now it's starting to creep into the 30s where we're seeing people starting to decline even then. I can personally attest to this because this is what I've heard, overheard people saying. I hear, I hear people in their 30s talking about how they wake up stiff as a board. Their back is seized up. They have to sleep sleep in a certain way because or their joints will be will be stiff yeah. and or will be locked up and they can barely move. These are people that are still in their 30s. I'm 40 years old. I don't have any of these problems. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it's just steadily getting worse. But on that note about food, so in in terms of losing muscle, and I think that's probably the, the biggest boogeyman of getting older is losing muscle. You lose muscle, you lose functionality. You can't you can't do anything. So losing muscle is the big is the big ticket item right there. But we have so many different um, theories and ideas here about how best to preserve muscle. Now we have advocates of this is getting this is growing larger and louder advocates of the carnivore diet which is about you know really about really compounding or increasing how much protein you really get in a single setting you know there's this traditional like 1 gram of protein per body weight uh these folks are saying no twice that much you really need to double down on that protein and really start to quote unquote beef up 
no pun intended, <laughs> your protein intake to increase your muscle mass. You also talked about very hintly, you hinted fasting because you talked about talking or eating too frequently. So not allowing your metabolism to power down to really digest the food in there. And you're just uh, increasing your insulin resistance. You want to be insulin sensitive because uh, that, that way your body really responds to the insulin your pancreas shoots out into it. And then it does the job it needs to. And it doesn't feel like it has to constantly activate, 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 activate. And that's when you get insulin resistant. So in your, in your opinion here, how do you really keep up your 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 muscle your muscle mass? Because ideally, what you want as you get older, you want more muscle, less body fat. That's a healthy way of aging. Yeah. Keeping up your muscle mass while not really eating very, not eating too frequently, because that's and myself included, yeah. I found that very challenging to kind of keep that in balance here. Not eating too much. But eating enough that my muscle, uh, my muscle um, index does not decline to the point where I'm going to get impaired one day. Yep. Boy, you're asking great questions, Sean. That's that's a good. That, one. And that was a that was a long one. I'm sorry. Well, for that. It was a, that was a, it's a really good one. And so, um, and by the way, I love I love talking about this stuff. This is mm -hmm. me the, uh, among the more fascinating things that I think about every day because I do think a dichotomy exists. So when, first of all, from, from the perspective of longevity, I think every expert out there would agree that when looking at how the body ages, one of the, one of the aspects that is looked at routinely is what's happening with mTOR. Now, mTOR is an acronym for mechanistic target of rapamycin. This is basically a protein that is a nutrient sensor. Bottom line is when mTOR is elevated, you're in a, uh, an anabolic state, you're building, right? And when mTOR is not elevated or when it is detuned, you're in a catabolic state. So each time you eat, of course, insulin is then secreted in response to the rise in blood sugar, but then you're also kickstarting this mTOR pathway. And that's great for growing muscle, but it's bad, and I use that word loosely, it's bad for aging and it's bad for longevity because what we see with mTOR as an example is that when it is constantly turned on, the aging process is accelerated and often dramatically. And when we look at one of the more interesting and cutting edge longevity uh, medicines right now that everybody's talking about uh, that's in the field, it's rapamycin. And rapamycin is basically a drug discovered on Easter Island in the 1960s 60s from, from some, some bacteria there. And really what what rapamycin does, among many things, is basically turn off the mTOR pathway or turn it down, thereby, uh, in theory, slowing the aging process. And rapa has been, you know, in every animal model and in all the research that's been done, uh, consistently shown that it slows aging. Now, you know, humans are not mice. Uh, so we have to be clear there. But there's a lot of human trials going on right now with rapamycin. So where am I going with this? You know, we've got this dichotomy which exists uh, where 
we want mTOR to be turned on and we want to be in an anabolic state so we can grow muscle, as you alluded to. But if it's turned on all the time, if it's elevated all of the time, then we're going to be aging at a much, much faster rate. And I will say this, I, I don't want to throw bodybuilders under the bus because uh, I think what they do is absolutely amazing. But I think consistently across the board, when we see uh, athletes and other, you know, let's just say activities that involve constantly fueling the body, constantly eating and constantly in an anabolic state, uh, those folks age more rapidly across the board. And they also experience a lot, lots of age-related declines and diseases. Unfortunately, I, I think, you know, certainly this is what I've observed over many years. So, so what I do and what I recommend is we come back to try to strike the best balance between these two opposing, you know, processes, which is, you know, an anabolic one and a catabolic one. Now, the research is pretty clear that the first meal of the day should be high in protein. And I will tell you that what I recommend to people that I work with and what I say in the book is let's just target 100 grams of protein a day, you know, what, or depending on your size, one gram per pound of body weight, which is, is certainly significantly more than the RDA, uh, which is, I think, 0.8 per kilogram of body weight. So for someone my size, 155 pounds, you know, I'm just trying to get 100 grams a day as a baseline versus the 50 grams that the RDA is recommending. And as I said, the science is pretty clear. The first meal of the day should be one that is quite concentrated in protein. So I'm a big advocate of what I call time-restricted eating. Some people will think of it as intermittent fasting. I've done this virtually my whole life, even during periods uh, you know, a very intense um, training for triathlon and marathoning. And to some degree, the training for those activities kind of, you, you know, fasting kind of gets built in to some degree, especially the timing of meals. Mm -hmm. But for me, on average, I'm eating my first meal of the day around noontime or one. As I sit here now, it's 1140. I haven't eaten yet. When we're done, I'm going to strength train. Then I'm going to eat. The first thing I'm going to consume just to get, uh, you know, an anabolic process started is a scoop of uh, high quality uh, whey protein um, in a shaker bottle with a little bit of chocolate milk. And that's going to get things kind of kickstarted. Then I'm going to have a meal shortly thereafter, after I shower, I'll have some eggs and avocado, you know, a few things like that. And again, the idea that it's pretty, pretty focused uh, and pretty high in protein. And then I'll eat dinner a little bit later on in the day. So what I'm, what I'm really coming back to is this idea that I'm going to combine having an eating window of approximately for me, you know, noontime to 6 p.m. Generally speaking, that's what I do and what I recommend. I have an entire chapter in my book on time-restricted eating where I look at all different ways to approach it. But if I can compress the amount of time that I'm actually eating, um, and at the same time, make sure that I'm getting in enough protein in that first meal and that my meals, you know, my other second meal of the day is also pretty, pretty protein centric and pretty fat centric, then, then I think that's probably the ideal balance. And I will say carbohydrate for me and for the people I work with 
what we what we talk about is how active they are because i think if you're if you're really training intensely you need a little bit more carbohydrate you know especially to fuel activities that require you know uh you know a pretty good uh, high you know intense amount of energy you know from stored glycogen obviously and uh and glucose floating around in the bloodstream but i'm not doing i mean i'm doing an hour of exercise a day maybe 45 minutes to an hour on average so so I just don't need a whole lot of carbohydrate, that's for sure, uh, comparatively. But, you know, to your point, there's these two opposing worlds. What what we get when we have that eating window is we get lower overall insulin levels or more sensitivity to insulin because we're not I'm not exposing myself to food constantly and calories constantly. And I'm also getting the on-off switch happening with mTOR, which I think is critical, right? So for folks that are listening right now, if they are eating frequently and if they're responding to cravings, and by the way, I think, you know, listen, if you eat and three hours later you're hungry, that's not hunger. That's a craving, you know. That's your body responding to, you know, a variety of factors usually elicited from sugar or something related to some sugar. but if i can if i can balance the the time restricted eating sort of window of you know somewhere around you know having that window of like 6 hours a day but then maximize protein intake while i am consuming uh you know during those 6 hours then i think i can strike that balance and by the way i'll just add one more thing in my book and i i really believe this I don't believe it's smart for people to eliminate food groups from their diet. I mean, I follow, you know, Sean Baker and a number of other uh, well-known carnivores. And I watch him on Twitter, you know, he's eating a ribeye every day and not, not much else. Listen, I, I think uh, beef has incredible health benefits for us. And I'm a big advocate of eating red meat, absolutely. But I also believe that plant foods provide some benefits in balance as well in the form of phytonutrients uh, and obviously methylation adaptogens. We didn't talk about methylation at all, but DNA methylation is a big part of what happens from an epigenetic perspective, right? The signals in our environment internally and externally that dictate how genes are actually expressed. So the bottom line there is, to me, the smartest diet is one where people listen to how their body reacts to the foods they eat. So if you eat something and you feel terrible, that may be a sign you shouldn't eat that as much, right? Right. Um, but generally speaking, don't, you know, I mean, you know, the pendulum always ex it swings from one extreme to the, you know, the idea of being strictly vegan or strictly carnivore just doesn't make sense to me. And I've never honestly ever seen people over the long term that are healthy whenever they remove those food groups from their diet. We can look at things in a microcosm. You know, I mean, I can talk to a vegan and I've coached many of them for many years. And in a, you know, in a microcosm, they might say, oh, you know, I feel great. Um, but I'm not sure if we had the same conversation two or three or five years later, whether they would say the same thing. And oftentimes, I don't have that opportunity to ask them that question. So I think we need all of these foods, uh, but we need to really think about how our ancestors ate and the idea that if it has a long list of ingredients, it's probably not that good for us 
if it comes from the ground, it may be better for us. Uh, if it's manufactured in facility uh, where it's designed to, you know, last for years inside a, a plastic container, probably not going to be the best thing for us. And again, it's it's big food and big pharma, right? They're kind of dictating it. We have to ignore these messages around us. So anyway, I don't know if that helps. I get just looking at how to balance that well, protein and mTOR. Well, I did. I think it did help a little bit because because um, when you're even when you're talking about these people who say you should get like at at baseline like one gram of protein um, per body weight, which means that you know at at 192 pounds roughly, is which is where I'm at, um, I should be getting 192 grams of protein, which sometimes I can hit, sometimes I can't. But yeah. you know what? Just strictly on food alone, like solid food alone, that that's a lot to be ingesting, and that doesn't really that doesn't gel too well with the idea of like limiting how much you're actually exposing your body to food and forcing it to die. How much you're revving your digestive system like that, which is like you said, anathema in the long term to longevity because you are in, constantly chronically engaging this mTOR and chronically engaging your insulin. And so you're just kind of overworking and overheating your body. So, I really like secretly. I've wondered how can that. I mean, I come back to the one gram. Um, excuse me, hundred yeah. grams a day is is the target I always give people, and then from there, see how your body responds to it. Because you're absolutely right. Um, you know, when you're when you're near two hundred pounds, the idea of two hundred grams of protein is a, is a significant amount. And if you're vegetarian, you know, you gotta you gotta consume like five thousand calories. Um, yeah, to get that amount of protein. Yeah. So yeah. it's crazy. But I think 100 grams a day is a reasonable target because, um, you know, three or four eggs, you know, some sardines, uh, we can, you know, go down the list of what we think of as the highest quality protein foods. But mm -hmm. I think you can if you can hit that target for most of us pretty good and then just kind of see where we go from there. Yeah. I like the, also the fact that you you talked about how 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 right now you're in a fasted state you have not eaten for several several hours here and to someone who does do the same thing too i don't really fast per se but i do kind of limit how much i do eat and i kind of follow a certain window of time in which i eat generally late in the morning like 11ish to 12 and then i kind of cut it off around like 5 to 5:30 um that 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 is uh I can personally attest to that how well that actually works too. And you know, a lot of people think that, you know, if you if you're not constantly eat if you don't eat enough, then you're gonna feel sick. And you know, I have gone fourteen, fifteen hours without eating and I have felt just fine. In fact, um, a couple months ago I ran an obstacle course. The last thing I ate, the obstacle course started at about twelve thirty in the afternoon. The last thing I ate was at nine thirty the previous night. Um, I ran that whole thing, felt fine. I didn't actually get to eat anything until about four thirty in the afternoon when I got back home. Yeah, and I felt absolutely fine. I didn't. The only thing I had in my stomach was black coffee. I had no carbohydrates. I had no food whatsoever. My body was just fueling itself on stored glycogen and fat cells. Yep, and that's that's all it needed. I felt absolutely fine. I didn't feel weak or famished or anything else. And so 
Um, one of the I challenges, think, yeah. you know, one of the challenges, Sean, is I think the definition of the word fasting. So as I mentioned, I like the term time-restricted eating because in my mind, fasting connotates 24 hours or longer. I don't mm -hmm. think of going without 12 or, you know, 12 to 15 hours without food as fasting, to be honest with you. It, to, to me, that's just normal human behavior. You know, uh, in my book, I, I talk about what's normal versus common, right? I think anybody who thinks about it from a reasonable perspective, because we don't know exactly how our ancestors survived and how they lived, but I think it makes a lot of sense to think that if we were to go back 30,000 years or maybe even a million years, that uh, that our ancestors very likely had periods where they were exposed to lots of food. Maybe they were able to kill an animal, find, you know, a, a particular part of the forest where there were, you know, plant foods, they could climb the trees, dig for tubers, what have you, and that, you know, that they would consume it when they had it. But then uh, most were nomadic uh, before the agricultural revolution. So they were moving a lot. Maybe it might, you know, there might be a number of hours where they wouldn't have had food. So to me, what we're talking about is normal human behavior. It's not fasting per se. And I will, I will add, just in case it, you know, any of your listeners are interested is I don't advocate longer than 24 hours. I don't even do, I mean, I sometimes do a 24 hour fast, but as a rule, I don't advocate it. And, and I know a lot of the influencers in the field have talked a lot about those extended fasts to really kickstart autophagy. Um, but to me, it's not, it's not a smart trade-off because I know that at my age, uh, at 63, I need muscle and I need to continue to be able to build it. And I don't want to spend 24 hours or more in a catabolic state where my body is literally tapping into muscle to get the protein that it needs to build. As you know, I mean, the human body does not store amino acids. So when there is an isn't a pool of amino acids available for muscle building to kickstart uh, protein synthesis, then the body is forced to go into muscle to grab those uh, amino acids. And I, I just don't think that's a smart trade-off. So there's a balance there. You know, what is, what's normal uh, and easy to do, as you've described, you're able to easily do it. I'm absolutely, you know, able to easily do it. Uh, which is to say, go to 12, you know, 12 to 15 hours without eating. Again, you know, you, when you're eating real food, you're, you're much more satisfied than when you're eating processed foods, right? Um, and the, the cravings just don't exist uh, once, once you've gotten out of that habit. Uh, so to me, that's just very normal. In terms of training, now, what would you think is the best way to train? So obviously, we're talking about preserving muscle or even building muscle, which you can do late into life. They found people in their 90s can build muscle. Absolutely. Um, they won't get big, no. but they will build muscle. Um, so you probably want to emphasize strength training, but I know you also do Ironman competitions, which are very endurance-based, but you do need strength. You need strength to run that distance. You need strength to swim and to just keep your body constantly moving through all all of this yeah. all this all this athletic um 
all this athletic uh, durability. Yeah, yeah. Um, sure. So we've, you probably would you agree that you probably really want to dial in on building strength as opposed to just doing cardio? Well, absolutely. I you know when I when I look at how my own training and exercise habits have changed, they've evolved to reflect the period of time in my life that I'm at. In my book, I, of course, say that both cardiovascular exercise and resistance exercise are both necessary. Uh, to me, they, they really are. The, the interesting thing I'm sure that you, you know, that you found is when you approach resistance training in the right way, which is to say, like, for example, when I do body weight work with, uh, someone I'm working with, we focus on moving rapidly between exercises, but very slowly within the exercise itself, generating a lot of, you know, internal tension, radiating that tension. But when they're done uh, with an exercise, we move rapidly to the next. And that results in a little bit of a cardiac boost, right? Their mm -hmm. heart rate gets elevated a little bit. So you can get a little bit of that benefit. So I think the challenge is, um, how do we achieve the cardiovascular benefits that we need? Because certainly I think that's important from the standpoint of mitochondrial health, right? We need to engage our aerobic energy systems. Uh, certainly when we look at maximal aerobic capacity, that's a big biomarker that a lot of the influencers and researchers are looking at to see a direct correlation between what max VO2 is and how mm -hmm. long somebody lives. But I say in my book, and I say to every person I talk to, resistance training is number one. And yeah. along with that, and, and you and I haven't talked about it a lot yet, but um, I love the work that I've done as uh, a functional range conditioning mobility specialist, which is a certification I did many years ago. I love the way Spina looks at uh, joint articulation and really understanding that you know the the patterns we employ in our training are limited by the joint's ability to move. If the joint doesn't move, uh, then the pattern's going to be limited to some degree. Mm -hmm. so, uh, in all of my program, I'm like, let's get back to make sure that your hip is functioning as a hip should, that your shoulder is functioning as a shoulder joint should, that your ankle is moving as an ankle should, and that those joints are stable. And then if we can take those basic movement competencies, and then engage muscle in a way where we're creating our own resistance first, then, then the risk of injury is nil. It's zero. It doesn't exist. And we're maintaining our ability to move. I mean, and fundamentally, it's just about, hey, can I, can, can I go out and play golf, uh, climb a tree, run around with my grandson, and then do a pull-up, you know, or, or whatever it may be. Putting all of those pieces together, I think, is important. You know, in an ideal world, you know, to come back to your question, we need both cardiovascular exercise and resistance training, but resistance training is number one at my stage of the game as well. And all the triathletes that I coach and have coached for more than 20 years, they all do a lot of strength training in their, in their routines. And they know, as you do, Sean, that running doesn't make you stronger. It makes you weaker, right? If you just do nothing else but distance run, you will get weaker, you know, aside from maybe, you know, saying you're going to do constant hill repeats every day and, you know, you're running mm -hmm. up a hill against resistance where you're going to get 
some strengthening benefits to the calf, quad, uh, and hips. But other than that, uh, running makes you weaker, not stronger. It breaks you down. It doesn't build you up. It's a tremendous exercise for cardiovascular fitness, mm-hmm. but it is not a very good exercise um, for your chassis. And in fact, I mean, I'm not sure if you saw my background, but I operated a gait analysis lab in. Yeah, I did see that. Yeah. So, uh, you know, for about 10 years working in clinic with a sports physician, working with field sport athletes and, and endurance athletes who are struggling with injury. I mean, runners seven out of 10 in a calendar year get injured in one form or another from what is a very repetitive activity uh, where, you know, in order to stay injury free as a runner, you need a lot of frontal plane stability. Uh, and a lot of balanced strength. And what we typically see with runners is is really just the opposite. So, you know, we need to be strong. We need, you know, runners need guys like you to go, you know, go into your studio, get balanced and stable and strong, and then take that stability, mobility, and strength and go out and run and then or go mm-hmm. out and do whatever it is that they want to do. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I often say movement is universal. How how you want to express it is up to you. So I kind of treat a lacrosse player, a soccer player, pretty much the same way as I do a runner. They need the same basic movement competencies, right? Well, I've, well, I've always kind of held about uh, cardio because I've never been anti-cardio. I know it's very in vogue these days to be against cardio. And I see it all over social media and the internet. And it's so, so many of these people are just being absolutely stupid about it. But what I've always thought about cardio is that you're right. Like long durations of cardio is not, is in fact, just not good for you. Like it's just not, if you look at these, these chronic runners, these distance runners, you all, you'll notice that, yeah, they're all very slim, but they don't look particularly healthy. They look kind of sickly. And that that was actually one thing that kind of turned me off about running in general. I mean, I, I did, okay, I'll say in high school, I did do track and field. I did, I was a sprinter in high school. Um, but that was one thing that did kind of turn me off about long distance running. It's like, these guys don't have any muscle. They just don't look good. They don't look <laughs> aesthetically. It's just it doesn't it doesn't appeal to me to look like that. To look like a stiff breeze would blow me right over. But um, one thing I will say about running, uh, incorporating cardio into your into your health span, is that at least in terms of like short distance running, like sprints or hills, like something like that, it does increase red blood cell production. So it does like. Increase like the amount of red blood cells, mitochondria, capillary development, all of those things, all those things, stream effects. Exactly. It does. It does do that. It increases um, all those things, the amount of red blood cells in your body. If you have more red blood cells in your body, it builds muscle. That's what muscles, it helps aid in muscle growth. It does, you know, right, exactly, which is what the muscles need to actually keep growing. So I will say that in that very kind of limited portion, if you're going to do, I would say if you're going to do cardio, make it like sprints or something very quick, like a hit, like a hit workout or something like that. Well, in my book, to answer your question, uh, not mm-hmm. to interrupt you, by the way, because no, you're fine. Really good stuff. But in my book, I, I do address uh, what's been called the extreme exercise hypothesis. And this is a conversation I have with all of my aging uh, endurance athlete clients. 
Now I sit here uh, as someone who's done, you know, I mean, I've done dozens and dozens of marathons. I mean, I've probably done the Boston Marathon, I think 15 or 16 times. Of course, Iron Man and all of these things. Right. What I know is this, when, when you talk to a non-runner, if you're a runner, a non-runner doesn't get you. And as you pointed out in the strength and conditioning field, most of those experts look at runners as complete nut jobs. But what I will say is this, Sean, uh, and then I'll, I'll talk about that extreme exercise hypothesis. But what I will say is this, is as a runner, um, there's something, there's a reason I have run that if you're a non-runner, you can't quite understand. There's something that happens. For me, it's my ability to think, uh, to reach a state of, uh, of meditative peacefulness. It's really me expressing who I am. And I think everybody has that path that they go. So, so I don't convince people to try to become runners. In fact, I would agree with you 100%. Running in and of itself is not a healthy activity. And to get back to the hypothesis I mentioned earlier, I know full well that all of the many, many, many years I've done of very hard endurance cardiovascular type exercise has resulted in uh, morphotic you know, uh, changes to, to my heart, you know, with a thickening of the, you know, walls of the heart, particularly the left ventricle. I mean, tissue is much more scarred uh, and fibrotic. There are changes that have occurred that are not necessarily good for me. And of course, I'm monitoring things like, you know, calcium score and other uh, lipid uh, lipids. And so, you know, on a regular basis, just to make sure that I'm where I need to be. But right now in my own running, um, I do exactly what you just recommended, which is 30 to 45 minutes where the bulk of what I'm doing is either very, very easy what I would think of as zone one, zone two, mm -hmm. mouth closed, breathing only through the nose, or what I would describe as sprinting. Um, but it's not sprinting in real terms because, you know, it's hard for a 63-year-old distance runner and triathlete to sprint. But I will say that when I'm looking at my Garmin, I'm getting under six minute per mile pace um, during these 20 to 30 second intervals. So in my social media circle, certainly in the book, I emphasize to all of these lifelong endurance athletes that they need to transition to something which is very variable. And that's really what I'm coming back to is this idea right. of this steady state upper zone two stuff that I've done that I did for 30 years um, is not healthy. All things being equal relative to something which is very variable. So, it, you know, I'm sure my neighbors think it's weird. There's a grassy area not that far from me. <laughs> uh, and I'll, I'll jog around, you know, and do some, you know, try yeah. to do some bounding and some other um, skill drills and things of that nature, which, again, is tough for a 63-year-old distance right. runner. But, um, but then I'll pick a stretch on the grass uh, and I'll yeah. just accelerate as hard as I can and then walk around for a minute. Sometimes if I'm feeling energetic, I'll do these – 15 to 20 second intervals on a minute. So I'm getting about yeah. 40 seconds of walk rest. I'll do 15 to 20, jog home. Yeah, the, uh, and for all of you uh, listening right now, if you wanna have a, an idea what my morning was like, cause 
this is a, a rest day for me. I don't really have rest days, but I always do something. But, you know, in terms of like really uh, increasing your heart rate and your VO2 max, you know, I didn't go out and run. What I did today is I like ran in place as fast as I could for like a minute, you know, like 30 seconds to a minute, ran in place. Yeah. And I was pump, pumping my arms like I was doing a sprint, pumping my arms, doing that. And then, you know, I did burpees. All this in my living room, you know, burpees, somersaults, all these things in there, just uh, very quick, high intensity stuff. Did it all just this morning in the, in right in my living room and my heart was pounding from it. And I took my needed rest and I did this, you know, for maybe 20 minutes. I didn't really look at the clock all that closely, but it was about 20 minutes of pretty, you know, wild, you know, off the wall kind of behavior. And my heart rate was pumping through my, my heart was jacking through my chest for me. Yeah. That's really that's really about what we're talking about here. We're exactly. not talking about you just going you going out there on you going out there and you just absolutely killing yourself on hills or whatnot. That's about what we're really speaking about here. That's about all you really need to do. Yeah, I think it I think it really is for the most part. Um the the one challenge I think um that I, I just want to throw out is in my book in the chapter on cardiovascular exercise, I present what I call type one and type two. Mm -hmm. So what you did was really representative of type two exercise, you know, cardiovascular exercise, quite intense, very variable, short duration. And type one, of course, is what I described earlier as being, you know, zone one, low zone two, where you're breathing only through your nose, not gasping for air. So you're well below, certainly well below your lactate threshold, but even below what uh, I would consider to be the mid or upper range of uh, your aerobic zone. But in these two types of cardiovascular exercise that I, that I talk about, what you describe, I think is fantastic as type two, but the challenge and, and the reason I wanted to mention this is that kind of intense type two cardio cardiovascular exercise requires somebody to be stable, someone to mm -hmm. be functionally moving well. Right. I've seen too many people over many years. Again, remember, I worked in a clinic for 10 years. I mean, folks coming in, having done something crazy, meaning, you know, using some amount of load or resistance and doing an exercise, box jumps or other kinds of exercises to get their heart rate jacked, but they, they weren't moving well at a fundamental level. They didn't possess what I think of as foundational skills. Right. And they ended up damaging themselves, getting injured. So I would, I would only add, you know, when, when, I, when, we, when I talk to people about that type two type exercise, um, just make sure you're moving well. Make sure you have and possess that basic movement competency to be able to handle those exercises. Right. Because listen, man, you mentioned burpees earlier, which is I'm not an exercise I'm a fan of. Yeah, no one is. <laughs> and the thing is, is I've seen a lot of people get hurt doing them. Yeah. And, and you know, they get your heart rate up. Uh, is, it a, is it an I mean, I don't think there's really such a thing as a bad exercise. I just think there could be bad exercises for certain people. And I would say that could be a bad exercise for somebody who's not fundamentally right. stable uh, and, and right. possess good skills. Right, exactly. I would not recommend that to a newbie, especially yeah. for someone who's deconditioned, at least not at a high velocity kind of rate. No. I would 
I would bring it down several notches to just maybe doing like right because injury of, is the worst thing of all, right? I mean, when someone yeah, gets injured, everything goes downhill from there. Right, know? exactly. So I no, I I would not recommend that for someone brand new without you know very severe modifications at least. Right. Um, but that was just an example I threw out there for you know for anybody who wants Great to listen. Great way to achieve what what it is you're looking for, which is to get your heart rate up for a period of time, variable right. in nature, and you get right. a lot of those benefits: mitochondrial, right. capillary, so forth. Right. Yeah. But yeah, what you said was absolutely correct. You want to start with the foundations. Get yourself right first. Get things in order. Start with strength training. I would say before you go into anything high intense. That's um, a big flaw, I think, a big hole in this uh, high-intensity exercise um, kind of industry that has blossomed over the last 10 to 20 years now is that they just kind of take in anybody, CrossFit, whoever. They take in anybody, anyone who comes in the door, anyone who signs up and pays their fee. They take in anybody, and they put them through these, like, beat-down survival workouts. And they have coaches there. I get that. And they, they're supposed to be monitoring and they probably do a very good job. They're very qualified people. I'm not against CrossFit. I just want to say that. But the fact that you just let anyone come in, sign up and do these things, and you don't really know where they stand on anything other than just but what you see, which may or may not be the full story, um, and you're putting them through all these high-intensity workouts, you are really putting them in danger by doing so because you don't know where they really are. Absolutely. I mean, I think you have to move well first. I uh -huh. think that's where it starts. And, you know, there's a there's a difference between just getting a workout. Sometimes, you know, someone will express to me that they want to get a workout. And I'm like, hey, I got some holes that need to be dug in my backyard. You want to just go dig some holes? Because that's just, <laughs> we, can, we can achieve it the same way. But there's a difference between, you know, just, just getting a workout versus uh -huh. moving in a way that enhances your ability to age well and feel great right. to come back to the title of my book, right? Because it's about the long term. If you, if you blow out a disc in your back, if you end up uh, destroying your knee and need a knee replacement, um, if, you know, and we could go down the list, right? Tearing a rotator cuff muscle, uh, any of these things occur and now you're not the same human being you weren't before. You don't get a chance to get a new joint, not a real one. We have one body. We have to honor that, honor our health and train for the betterment of our body, not to its detriment. But I understand, you know, the human, our, our human nature, which is I want quick results and I want to feel myself really working hard. And so, you know, you know, as a trainer, man, it's always about trying to strike that balance with people, getting them going, getting them encouraged, getting them fired up but also uh, making mm -hmm. sure that they're in control. Exactly, exactly right. Uh, so Al, we talked about so much here. Uh, as we're gonna start to wind down uh, the broadcast, uh, your, your book sounds fascinating. I like the fact that you call it the aging puzzle here because that kind of really um, speaks to like the puzzle. Well, how do you solve a puzzle? You take one piece, you add another piece, and another piece, another piece, now you have to spend some time figuring out which piece is what, but once you do, it all kind of comes together and forms a picture here. Um, that's kind of the uh, impression I took from that title here. Yeah, you know, um, I, I, really, um, I really came to that conclusion, and I'll, I'll give you a couple of really quick examples, because as you mentioned, you know, we were 
we've been going on here for a while, which is great, by the way. I love yeah. talking yeah. about that stuff. But yeah, for sure. One of the things that I've seen, I have I have this benefit of being, you know, being in this field and looking at what's happening around me. And I've been thinking about this now for my entire adult life, more than 40 years since I made that decision to die healthy. One of the most common things that I've seen, Sean, is that there will you know, the overwhelming majority of people, even the people who are really, you know, cognizant about their aging and their health, uh, there tend to be things that they do really well and things that they don't do well at all. Uh, and they have a hard time crossing, you know, that bridge. And that's really what I wanted to talk about in my book, which is, to your point, all of these pieces is the, of the puzzle. For example, Let's say someone goes to yoga five times a week and they've got what is obvious, obviously high levels of flexibility uh, and joint uh, range of motion. And they love that practice and it's yoga is wonderful for what it is. But let's say that that person who goes to yoga five times a week, uh, but doesn't eat well or, or doesn't have the mindset where, you know, the other parts of this puzzle are really important or maybe doesn't strength train at all and is losing yeah. muscle rapidly. And of course, there's the runner. We've talked about the runner. Let's, you know, the person's like, oh man, I'm out there running every day. I'm taking care of my health. Um, but they don't get any protein in their diet. They're, you know, eating mostly carbohydrate and eating all the time and don't do any strength training. Or there's the gym rat who goes in every day and pushes a lot of weight around. Um, but is losing joint mobility and doesn't address cardiovascular conditioning and may not eat as well. Um, and of course, there's the person, person who has the perfect diet, shops for organic food every day, goes to the farmer's market, uh, but doesn't do any exercise. Um, or who doesn't have a mission or purpose in life, which is another a chapter in my book, or who may be under a lot of stress, a negative stress. Um, you know, there's a chapter in my book where I talk about blue zones and, and what we've learned from the Okinawans and, uh, you know, the other blue zones, uh, regions around the world. And so we know that mission and purpose in life is really important, especially mm -hmm. at the age. So my, my hope was to convey to, to someone who really wants to age well, that we need to consider all of these pieces to the puzzle. We don't have to be perfect in any way, shape or form with all of them or really with any of them. But we can't ignore certain aspects that clearly have an impact on our health and how fast or slow we're aging. Well, normally at the end of my podcast, I like to wrap things up with a final word from the guests to sum up everything that they spoke about. And I think you you just went ahead and did that without even being prompted from me. So I think I think we'll just kind of leave it there, Al. Al, thanks so much for coming on, man. It's been a pleasure. You got it, Sean. Um, just wanted to let your your visitors know that uh, if they if they want to connect with me, they can find me at thealliman.com or at pursuitathleticperformance.com, my two websites. I'm uh, really excited about my new Beat Aging Transformation Program. Beat being an acronym for belief, encouragement, accountability, and taking action. And of course, my book is available on Amazon or through my website. Um, I really appreciated you inviting me on. As you as you can tell, I hope I, I love talking about these things and I love sharing yeah. what I've learned and I've, I've made all the mistakes. So uh, I hope people can learn from the mistakes I've made. <laughs> uh, and I appreciate the work you're doing out there in Ames, Iowa, man. Which is uh, 
I've ridden well, my pretty- bike across the entire state of Iowa many, uh, Have you? many times, actually. Yeah, I used to, I, in a musical group that toured through the Midwest. Um, oh, nice. Because I mentioned to you off air, I think that I uh, music was my primary vocation uh, and what I've spent most of my life doing. But um, I traveled on a bus with a musical group and we would travel through, you know, all those states. And uh, at the time I was training for Ironman, so I would just pack my bike and I'd leave a hotel in the morning and the next city or destination I just ride my bike to. I remember there's one city in Iowa where I think the film Twister yeah. shot. And I remember once like riding my bike up to the sign, like this is where the movie Twister was shot. <laughs> wow, I was in Iowa. Yeah. But anyway, um, off on a tangent. Thank you very no. much. No, no, thank you so much. And for those of you listening, of course, you'll, you can find um, all the uh, contact information for Al. It'll be in the show notes, as it always is. And um, to everyone who has listened, to everyone who will listen, thanks again for tuning in. My guest today has been Al Lyman. He's a speaker. He's a coach. He's the author of Age Well and Feel Great, The Proven Path to Solving the Aging Puzzle. Of course, I'll put that on the show notes where you can buy it as well. And um, Until next time, thanks everybody. Move forever. Peace out. Hey, thanks for listening. Don't forget you can become a supporter of the show by becoming a monthly subscriber. No commitments. Cancel anytime. Every little bit helps, and I'd sure love your support. Also, you can click any of the links to our social media platforms provided in the show notes, and you can email me at renfitnesswarriors at gmail.com. That's Ren, R-E-N, fitnesswarriors at gmail.com. If you got a fitness story to tell, I'd love to hear it. And you never know, you might just find yourself on the show. Until next time, train hard. Peace. Peace.